He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a sad day in May 2022 to learn of the passing away of my friend, the most impactful and important boss I ever had, the former longtime Denver DA, Norman Strickland Early Jr. I had a wonderful opportunity. It was mid-July 2020, and Norm Early was fully alive and engaged in a wide-ranging interview that touched on a lot of really interesting topics, like how Norm became the DA. I never heard that story before. It involved Furrier, Dick Kay, Dick Lamb, Dale Tooley, who he succeeded Anyway, Norm and I talked about his health challenges, his travels. He was in Atlanta with his beloved son, Ali, at the time. Three grandsons. He talked to great length about them and their futures. We talked about some famous cases we had in common. Quentin Wortham, the Capitol Hill rapist, who we prosecuted together. Yes, he was the Denver DA, and he came to the courtroom. Frank Rodriguez, he authorized the death penalty prosecution, and we did get a Denver death penalty verdict and find out how Norm feels even now about capital punishment. And then, wow, we talk about the United Bank murder case, James King, what a situation that was. And from Norm Early's perspective and mine, too, and... uh, I just feel really lucky to have had that chance to talk to Norman and now share it with you. We talk about the Denver DA family through Bill Ritter, through Dale Tooley, through Beth McCann, through so many others. A lot of names come up. We talk about Norm's upbringing in Washington, D.C., Brown v. Board of Education, his reaction to George Floyd being murdered. Remember, I did this interview with Norm mid-July 2020. It aired on episode three. I called it Bank Job about the uh, United Bank murder. We talked about that quite a bit. And wow, Yafet Koto, the actor, comes up. You have to hear this interview. But we talked about Donald Trump. And I knew from the pre-interview that Norm really could not stand the man. He took the man's measure. You'll hear about that a bit. And we talk about Vladimir Putin, speaking of bad guys. This is Norm Early. In his own words, I am so proud to present it to you. And listen to what he has to say about who should be vice president under Joe Biden. And his friendship with Kamala Harris. Anyway, it's just fascinating. This bonus episode dedicated to Norman Strickland Early Jr. Rest in peace, Norm. Enjoy this interview, everybody. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. A very special person in my life. Norm Early, back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This is where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, and kick around current events. Norm Early, welcome back to the lounge. Thanks a lot, Craig. What a day and age we have. You and I were talking. Let's start with how you are feeling and how you are doing for all your fans, especially here in Colorado. I feel fantastic. I'm doing well. I, you know, I've had some vertigo issues, and I was at the doctor this week to deal with, with those. You know, they started two years ago when I was in Colorado, and everything was fine for the longest time. 
but recently they have come back. And anyway, Norm, I know you. Are you just negotiating for your golf game right now? Because this sounds like first tee talk before we start a match. <laughs> this is the night before when I call to make the reservations talk, you know. <laughs> right. Are you able to play golf or what are you doing with yourself? Tell everybody where you've been living recently. Yeah, at my son's house in Atlanta, well, outside Atlanta, Georgia, in a little town called Austell, A-U-S-T-E-L-L. I came down here uh, a year and a half ago for Thanksgiving. And while I was here, and unbeknownst to me, my diabetes had acted up and he threw me in the back of the car. And uh, I was in four different medical facilities over a fairly short period of time. That's all subsiding with medication. I do take a, a few pills a day. Good for you. I hope you I hope you were being careful. You've always had such a wonderful son, Ali. What an athlete. And now you have three grandchildren, all boys. That's gotta be wonderful. I say early men make nothing but boys. We have been um, <laughs> <laughs> we've been blessed with one son, one grandson after another. Uh, the most recent being born uh, a year ago last week. And uh, he is really a pistol. Got that gleam in his eye and a wonderful smile and very inquisitive. And he also will reach for anything that's in sight. What do you predict for those three boys? Any athletes, any lawyers, any future Denver DAs? My son is trying to make his oldest boy a basketball player. And he likes it. He likes basketball. I've been to see a few of his games. I don't see as much potential as his you know, he, he's, he's in there. He's playing the game. You know, today, though, those those athletes who really stand out and who you know, secure the uh, scholarships and ultimately the NBA, uh, they they really stand out. And I don't think he's on that level. But, you know, he's, he's a good athlete. He should have fun playing basketball. He should enjoy doing it, something that he thinks is important to himself. And as long as that's the case, he'll prevail. My second grandson, I don't know what he's going to do. He always has his nose in one of those Xbox things forever. And the youngest grandson at one year old, he's really into the to the milk bottle. <laughs> Normally, it's so good to talk to you and catch up. But I remember you as an athletic man. What was your best sport growing up? Well, my college scholarship was track, track and field. What event? I ran the 100, the 200. Well, they weren't. There was 220 back then, and back then it was the 440. And, of course, the relay teams related there, too. My favorite sport is actually football, but we didn't have a football team at my college. And when I did try to play football, <laughs> I found myself getting broken up more often than I'd like to remember. So, you know. But but athletics does more for you than being able to prevail on an Olympic stage or whatever. It, it, it certainly has an opportunity for you, if you put yourself into it, to become a part of something that's greater than yourself, that being a team. Uh, a team is trying to achieve a common goal. And uh, I think that's one of the best things about sports. What a great segue into talking about the Denver DA's office. It felt like a team. It felt like a family. You know, I got hired by Dale Tooley. You remember the man far more than me, but I hit my professional peak under a guy named Norman Strickland Early Jr., who ran an incredible Denver DA's office that produced a future governor of Colorado, Bill Ritter. I'm sure you remember him. Am I right, Norm Early? Played a lot of sports in that DA's office. Ritter would come in and foul people on their basketball team. And Chuck Lepley, your second in command, what a great athlete he was. Am I on to something? Was there a connection between your athletic background and the team you built at the DA's office? One of the things when choosing men was we would look for individuals who were competitive. And the best way to show your competitiveness oftentimes was on a on the football field or the basketball court. 
we we certainly were concerned with intellectual capacity, and that is that's something that's hard to get from somebody other than their writings when they were in school. So we, we tended to lean, I think, towards people who were competitive, and it, and it often showed, often you know, was the case that when they were competitive uh, in sports, uh, they were also competitive in a courtroom. You would take some individuals who hated to lose. Think the guy on the other end of the phone is someone <laughs> who hated yes. to lose, <laughs> and and who had a you know you had a you had that killer instinct, buddy, both on the court and in the courtroom. So I'm going to take it as a compliment, although I know the the the, the go ahead. Maybe you're going to expand on it. I won't stop you. Nothing but a compliment, and you know, quite frankly, the people on both ends of the phone hated to lose. You know, it's a characteristic that many fine trial lawyers have. I think of you, of course, as my boss for many years. Also, a good confidant. We tried cases together. But back when you were a chief deputy DA and you were running a courtroom, I was probably in law school or maybe in college then. What years would that have been? And if I would have seen you on the fourth floor of the city and county building, describe what I would have seen. Well, it depends on, you know, I, I tried a few murder cases in my day. It, that's that's odd that, we, that I'm talking about murder cases because I I was talking to Bill Buckley last week or the week before. I think it was last week. And I think he said he tried 53 murder cases during all the years that he was in the district attorney's office. That's an incredible number of cases, period, let alone murder cases. But he really, he honed in on those murder cases and and tried them very efficiently. Again, he's another person who had that hate-to-lose spirit in him. He was talking to me about one of his cases and, oh, the case where the young lady, the young girl she was, was uh, murdered out at the uh, country club. The Lowe case, James Lowe, Pinehurst Country Club, yes. At Pinehurst Country Club, you got it. You know, he was. He had talked to her, the victim's mother just within a, in the mm. very recent past, and uh, she was always grateful for the attention that Bill paid to that case and gave her, her husband, and, and uh, the rest of the family uh, special attention. Yeah, you right. know, you know, you know that victims of crime is something that has always been important to me. And when you know, the, it, Bill's talking about the connection between him and her and the rest of the family after all these years. You know, they, she just called him and wanted to talk. Uh, it it means a lot, and it also means that they were probably victorious in trial because of the special connection. Right. And the evidence. Yeah. I mean, they, they, that, that case went up to the Supreme Court on some search and seizure and Miranda issues. But I, I will get Bill Buckley back in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I think he set the record with the most murder trials. But you and I have a record that's not likely to be broken normally, not anytime soon. That being... You called me into your office. You said Mike Kane is leaving to go to Pennsylvania. He's been prosecuting the Rodriguez case with Mike Little. I want you to take over, Craig. And I said, wow, thanks, boss. I'd like to read the file first, consult my conscience. And then I said yes. And then uh, Mike Little and I argued the case of Frank Rodriguez to a Denver District Court jury and 12 Denver citizens. And it was still liberal back then. Pat Schroeder was our representative, but all 12 said, death to you, Frank Rodriguez. That was Denver's last death penalty verdict. And given what happened, it's likely to be the last ever. The state has now barred the death penalty. Beth McCann announced that previously. So, of course, I was involved with Mike Little in the courtroom, but you were the DA who made the call. The feds just executed a guy, but the trend now is against capital punishment. 
How does it feel, Norm Early, to be, to be the last Denver DA to successfully get a death penalty verdict? Well, that, that's attributable to you and Mike, and I I certainly gave the go-ahead to seek it because I thought it was a reprehensible set of facts. I think that, you, you know, you guys did a hell of a job convincing the judge and then convincing the jury that he was not only guilty, but that he should receive the death penalty. Would you make the same decision today, Norm? Or have your thoughts about capital punishment evolved or changed? No, my thoughts are pretty much the same. I, I was never a, 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 a death penalty go-getter, but I always believed that it was my responsibility to enforce the laws as written, as promulgated by the state legislature. And certainly... He fit the death penalty qualifications. Right. Now, I think we have another record. It got broken, but you were the Denver DA and you went into the courtroom. I had the privilege of being with you in the courtroom when we prosecuted the Capitol Hill rapist, Quentin Wortham, and he got a record sentence and he, he deserved it. Tell everybody your memories of Quentin Wortham. Well, before we knew it was Quentin Wortham, he was a capital rapist. I don't know how many rapes he committed in that area and nearby, but I was, I, it was in excess of 20 for sure. He was, a, in, in this case, like so many of his cases, he broke into the apartments of unsuspecting young women and sexually assaulted them. He was gone from Colorado. He, you know, there was an intense manhunt for him, could not find him. And eventually they found him in in the town in which I am now, Atlanta, Georgia. That's, they found him working oh, in a capacity at, at, at the airport, I think it was. No, no, wasn't it a plumbing factory? He was making toilets or something like that? <laughs> that seems appropriate because he got flushed down as well, didn't he? <laughs> he did, but, you know, he was kind of a bright guy. He was obviously twisted. Quentin Wortham, the scourge of Capitol Hill in the 80s, and he would attack young professional women living on their own. And it got so bad that there was a mass exodus of women from Capitol Hill, a special task force set up to try to figure out who is raping all the women. He would make them shower afterwards. He was aware of physical evidence. He would go to great pains to see that they never could ID him. But through a combination of great police work and your tenacity, Norm Early, we found him and we put the case together. And he was a prolific rapist, wasn't he? He was also fairly intelligent. But his, his biggest mistake as an intelligent person was to decide that he wanted to, to represent himself. And I I remember very clearly that every time he got into an exchange with one of these women, he was the second smartest person in the exchange because they were some brilliant young ladies who really uh, represented themselves and the people uh, well in their trials. And, you know, I can look back upon some of the things that some of the exchanges in that case and they just ate him up. I would like to say it was us, but those women ate him up. Absolutely true. And when we went to trial in the city and county building, we had six victims that we brought forth. But right while the case was pending, there was a newfound science called DNA. And one of the Capitol Hill rape victims, they had recovered some fluid from the bedspread. And we were then got involved in Colorado's first DNA case. That trial, we split up the victims, Norm Early, David Olivas, and myself. But then you allowed David Olivas and I to go prosecute the first DNA case ever against Quentin Wortham. And because it had gotten so much publicity, I think we met with him in the jail cell. In fact, I know I did. And I could talk to him because he represented himself. He put in a change of venue, and I said, well, maybe we'll agree. What do you have in mind? He said, I don't know. I said, I hear they have cable TV in the Pitkin County Jail. And he said, 
I'm down for that. The next thing I know, you're paying for me to go to Aspen to try Colorado's first DNA case. I want to thank you publicly for that. We got another conviction and it got up to 400 years his sentence. Now, Mookie, that was his nickname. Quentin Wortham, he died in prison several years back, but he's one of the few defendants that we could talk to because otherwise they have a lawyer, right? He had also already already been convicted on the first case. Right, and he got 376 years from Lynn Huffnagel, who called him a predator, and now Joe Biden is running, and, you know, he was part of the Crime Act of 1994 in reaction to our summer of violence and stuff like that. But let me ask you, Norm, as a a proud African-American man, did it give you qualms to prosecute other African-Americans? No. What what I what I've often felt about the uneven statistics, insofar as trials and proceedings against minorities, these are the whites, is that we we don't do a very good job of apprehending white defendants who commit crimes, or we don't do as good a job as we do versus African Americans. So it's more likely that you're going to get the the black defendant in trial. And and the real question is how, how you treat them. Do you treat them as they should be treated based upon the facts and the circumstances of the case, based upon the victim's circumstances? Because, you know, you might remember we uh, put together that whole don't rip off your brother campaign. And one of the things that, that, that was very obvious to, to me at that time is that most crimes committed by minorities were committed against minorities of the same race. So as long as I I adhered to my feelings of proceeding against minorities under appropriate circumstances, I, I always felt good about it. Still do. Right. You have to call the balls and the strikes and the race of the batter should be irrelevant. The race of the pitcher as well. I I thought you were extremely sophisticated and understood how society worked. And you went after white defendants. One of the most memorable cases for me, I expect for you, and it's a little bit the theme of our show this week, big crimes. And we will move on to Donald Trump, who, in my opinion, is a big criminal. But I want to talk to you about a devastating crime in Denver, Father's Day massacre, United Bank building. You are in the midst of a mayoral run against Wellington Webb. Four innocent people counting money in the basement of that cash register building shot to death. I recently had Scott Robinson in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge talking about the case, but what's your memory of the prosecution of former Denver police officer James King? Uh, Boy, I was in uh, Otslan Park, I think it's called now, in North Denver. Got a call that there had been a shooting uh, in a bank robbery at the United Bank building. I was awfully confused because it was a Sunday, and and my primitive thinking was, who would rob a bank on a Sunday, you know, when the money's obviously somewhere else? Well, little did I know, but they had, Sunday was counting day at the bank, and the money was spread out on tables. They were counting it for its next location. It was it was also obvious that whoever committed that crime had a real working knowledge of the bank. James King had such a working knowledge and had worked in the bank as a, a guard at, at one point in his life, not too far removed from the time that the bank robbery occurred. He as as I saw it and uh, as, as the state saw it, entered the bank uh, using various credentials. I'm not sure what he used as far as credentialing, but he certainly got into it. And rather than just take the money, 
he not only shot everybody, but piled them up in one of the small rooms there in the bank, one on top of the other. You know, they were dead, of course, and and left the bank. Uh, Yafet Koto went down to this crime scene with me. And, you know, he's always played a detective in many of the series that he played in. But this was the first time he had seen anything like that in person. As far as uh, the, the case was concerned, that were you on that one, Craig? Well, that's an interesting story. Yafet Koto, what a great actor he was. And as I recall, and tell me if I'm wrong on any part of it, Norm, because it was quite a while ago. It was 1991 when you were running for mayor. Am I right? Mm -hmm. That's right. And uh, the election, the first round had taken place and it got riddled down to you and Wellington Webb. Am I right? In June? I know it was a Father's Day. Right. In any event, were, were you campaigning with Yafet Kodo when you got the word? That's right. I believe Mike Little was the homicide deputy. You had your chief deputies cover homicides. Mike Little, who we've already mentioned on Frank Rodriguez, he's gone now. What a great prosecutor he was. And he's probably up there with Bill Buckley in terms of murder case prosecutions. But he and I had become fast friends during Frank Rodriguez, thanks to you. And the United Bank case was not solved for quite a while. It was a mystery. Who committed this devastating crime? And for many weeks, Denver police and the FBI chased leads. And in the meantime, I think you had lost to Wellington Webb. And I recall after your concession speech, you said, I'm going fishing. And you took some well-deserved time off. And during that time off, Mike Little came to me and said, hey, I've been on this United Bank thing, but I have to go serve in the military. Let me fill you in in case something happens while I'm gone. (laughs) And boy, did things start happening. All the evidence against James King. And so I was there approving the search warrant and the arrest warrant. We executed it on uh, the 3rd, no, on the 3rd of July with the fireworks going off across the street at the Jeffco Fairgrounds. And the next morning, July 4th, I'm sitting there with FBI director for Colorado Pence, Bob Pence, and Aries Zavaris, and we are announcing the arrest of James King. Then I heard from you in the afternoon, and you said, why didn't you call me? And I said, I didn't know where you were, and you were upset. It's not the first time somebody's gotten upset with me, but you came down and The next thing I know, the case was assigned to Bill Buckley and Lamar Sims. So I did not prosecute that case. I wanted to. I was smarting from it. And I think, and you tell me if I'm wrong, Norm, but you were my boss and you were thinking about, am I going to run again as Denver DA? And when you were running for mayor, I had made noises about wanting to be DA, which manifested itself when... I ran against the incumbent, Bill Ritter, who succeeded you. But was there any politics involved? Like, you know, one, Mike, I mean, Lamar and Bill aren't going to run against me. I I wasn't going to run against you either, but were you? I'm just telling it from my perspective. Do I have anything right? What do I have wrong? Well, I never really worried about you running against me. <clears throat> <laughs> you would have probably kicked my ass, that's for sure. <laughs> That's not the ultimate decider, but that certainly was not an issue for me. A bigger issue for me was keeping you trying cases that that were of import. And you tried some very important cases in the Denver District Attorney's Office and and won them. And uh, I'm eternally grateful, and the citizens of Colorado should be grateful for the time that you put in and the incredible amount of energy. And I remember just from the cases we, we, you and I tried together, that you you were tireless in your efforts to uh, make the evidence better, to to make it. And by that, I don't mean by I don't mean by any means that you did anything to contaminate the evidence. What I mean is that you looked for a better way to present it and a better way to bring it out for the jury to see. And yeah, you know, I'll never forget uh, 
Well, maybe I was quoting more than capital rapist when you had the, there were some T's and you did some mathematical computations about the value of those keys having been found. And I remember you said, and that puts it up to whatever astronomical figure it was. And you said, and that's not even counting the pin used to hold the keys. And you would, and you know, of course you had a pin. That was, that was Captain Hill Ravens, wasn't it? Right, yeah, it was a Toyota key. You've got a beautiful memory. And we started doing it like DNA and calculating the odds of finding this specific key, which was stolen from one of the victims, right? Anyway, no, just to finish the United Bank story a little bit, because some people say, Craig, you're lucky you didn't try that case because the prosecution lost. I don't know if I would have won the case, but I know you called Al McCabe and me. And to help Lamar and Bill with closing arguments, I probably didn't have the best attitude about it. But I, and I still don't know because I couldn't watch the trial on court TV that much. It was televised because I was busy with my own stuff. Yeah, but you know, Craig, I think that that, that case to me is an actual uh, absolute anomaly in terms of losing it, and it wasn't because of any effort on a part of Lamar or Mike, because I think they did a great job. Lamar and Bill. Bill. I mean, Lamar Bill and, Buckley and Bill. And, yeah, and Buckley, Lamar, yeah. Right. They did a fantastic job on a case. It, 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 it still rankles me to this very day when I hear, when somebody asks me, well, what about him? You know, I, uh, I have seen a lot of evidence in cases, and that evidence had an awful lot of evidence. Uh, you know, but one of the things that we as prosecutors always always had is that we could look at one case and then look at the next case and the next case. And we could tell about the value of one as opposed to the other. And we could tell you what was a good case, what was a great case, what was a fantastic case. And what we were using, of course, was our institutional memory of cases one after another after another. Jury doesn't have that. All they have is the one case that you're presenting to them. And they don't know how it compares to other cases where there have been guilty case, guilty verdicts or not guilty verdicts. They just know they they have this case in front of them, and that's it. I know, looking at that case, that we had a phenomenal amount of evidence, but the jury didn't see it that way. And, you know, for, I've heard things in years, years that have passed regarding the four-person of the jury or some woman on a jury who had a defense attorney as a boyfriend at one time or even at that time, and that that single person really changed a lot of minds of persons on a jury. It, it really is a, is a shame because, you know, I remember we even brought that <laughs> the, not mind reader, uh, the woman from California who was a psychic. That's what she was. And she was talking about fruit, veil, fruit, veil, fruit, veil, veil, fruit, veil, fruit. And we had no idea what the hell she was talking about until, I guess uh, some of the guys looked up, and we were right there at Fruitvale Elementary School, and, and you know, then they started an intensive search in the waters behind Fruitvale, and but never did find the gun. Very disappointing. I mean, we we spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money. It, the key evidence was the gun that was used, which was linked up to a service revolver that he had. Am I remembering it right? And it became an issue that he said he threw away his service weapon, and we thought that was ridiculous. Well, no, I mean, I think anybody that's ever been in touch with law enforcement would tell you it's ridiculous. Nobody throws their service revolver away. But that's something that we knew, and we really knew it. And it was something that was brought out to the jury. But, you know, they don't know it with the intensity with which we know it. And that's one of those one of those facts that went their way, I guess, uh, in the final analysis rather than ours. But we had so much really good evidence in that case. And Norm, Norm, I, I know good evidence, and I know good broadcasting. You just gave us incredible sound about some major cases that I think is going to be fascinating. Can we take a short break and then come back and talk about what's going on in the world today? Let's do it. Okay, beautiful. Norm Early, 
Craig's lawyer signs. We'll be right back. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Normally, welcome back. What about Dale Tooley, the guy who hired me? But I didn't know him that well. You did. He's gone way too soon. He died shortly after a mayoral race of pancreatic cancer. Tell us about Dale Tooley. I think that Dale was easily one of the greatest public servants, and I'm not saying district attorneys, I'm saying public servants that Denver ever knew. He cared about that city. You know, the book that he wrote, I'd Rather Be in Denver, mm-hmm. it, it really is a testimony to the care and the tremendous feelings that he had for Denver. You know, it's just a shame that he's, no longer there. You know, he, when he went to South High School, he was on to Colorado, University of Colorado. I am told that he is one of the big reasons that, I don't know if it was Marilyn Vandiver, one of, one of these Miss America candidates who eventually became Miss America was in a sorority up at the CU, and Dale was part of the fraternity that uh, got her involved in the beauty pageant to begin with. And she eventually went on and won uh, Miss America. He really had a sense of honor and truthfulness about him. I, I, you know, I remember sometimes we'd be looking at something and and we would try to make a decision about what to do. And you know, my I was fairly young at the at prosecution stage at that time. He was young at prosecution, but he was very old at public service. And I and and I had pretty much made up my mind what we ought to do. And he would say, "No, Norm, I think we need to do this." And he'd say, "Why we should do that?" And you could always tell that it was because that's what would be best for the public. And that's what we really should be looking at. And, you know, I, I really admired the man. He made some very tough decisions, and he always did them. And you know how they always say, without fear or favor, that is exactly where he was coming from. He was not afraid to make the decision, and he wasn't giving anybody any, any, any favoritism for them. I know that one of his benefactors, financial benefactors had asked him for something. And uh, his uh, response to him is, I will give you every benefit that the law allows. And and, and, and I've talked to the guy since he says, no, I didn't want any benefit that the law allows. I wanted Dale to do me a favor as his best friend, you know. But no, Dale, Dale played it right down the middle and as straight as he could. He was a, an amazing individual. Right. Would he have been a good mayor of Denver? I think he would have been the best mayor we've ever had. What were his politics? Was he progressive? Was he moderate? Very, very progressive. Well, you know, you're not progressive in all all things. Moderate in some things, progressive in some things. Absolutely conservative financially, fiscally, you know. Dale Tooley, who hired me, did he hire you into the office normally? First time. Now, I remember when Dale decided to run for mayor. He had that bug in him. 
and he quit the DA's office, and that left it up to Richard Lamb, governor of Colorado, to appoint his successor. And there was quite a competition within the office. A guy named Norma Early on the phone with me right now. Dick Spriggs went on to be a Denver District Court judge, passed away a couple of years ago. What a celebration of life we had for him. And the other candidate was Beth McCann, who is now the Denver DA and running unopposed for his second term. But I was just a young guy in the office. I wasn't in on all the behind the scenes stuff. How did that go, Norm Early? Why did Governor Lamb pick you? Oh, boy. You know, that was the second time that Dale had run as uh, run from the district attorney's office. He, He was the DA. He ran, did not resign, and he lost that election to McNichols. And then four years later is the one where he did he did run and resigned. I was very excited about the whole prospect because you know Dale Dale looked me dead in the eye and said, "Run, Norm, run." And I, you know, I wasn't sure that I was going to do it because I'd seen what Dale had been through, and which is really one of the things that I think about when I was leaving. And I talked to some of you guys about succeeding me and the the prevailing wisdom among the, the potential candidates, or at least most of them, was we've seen what you've gone through and we're not going to do it. And and I, I guess when people are looking at you rather than you're looking at yourself, they have a clearer picture of the pain and anguish uh, that it's caused you, even though there's a lot of benefit and pleasure and joy uh, in the job. There was also a lot of pain and anguish, no question about that. Did did you know Governor Lamb? How did you impress him? There were a number of things that happened in that, in that race. I did not know uh, Governor Lamb very well. I think I met him a few times. That was about it. As the election was going on, I was trying to figure out the best way to approach it. So what I did was I said, what we need to do is approach this as if though it is a, an election and there's only a one-person constituent, and that's the governor. And so what we need to do is put together all my various groups of interest that we could. And so we put together the victims group and the defense attorneys group and the, you know just one group after another of people. And I, and we would meet every week. We met every single week, and we had assignments that were doled out to each of the each of the groups. I think there were about six or seven groups, and each group got an assignment every week. And their assignment was several people that they had to talk to, and they would pick people within the group whom they felt were best individuals to approach folks, and. The governor was one of those was 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 the ultimate objective. Wasn't wasn't the key endorsement that of Dale Tooley? Did Dale Tooley have any say in who Governor Lamb would select? Dale did not endorse. He, you know, I think that Paul, I think he certainly wanted to. But what 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 happened was the key the key one of the keys was there was an article that came out. In the newspaper, Dave Fogel, who was the chairman of the Democratic Party, my duty was to talk to several people, one of whom was Fogel. And we had breakfast one day at a place over on Colorado Boulevard. It's no longer there. And he told me, he said, Norm, you know, we, we talked about everything from trying cases to ability to manage money and, and everything. And he finally looked at me and says, and, and I was the last one of the candidates that he needed to talk to. And he said, you have obviously prepared yourself and you've done a great job and I really appreciate you sitting with me. He said, but I can't support you because you're black. And <laughs> I said, what? (laughs) And he said, 
he said, I just don't think the citizens of Denver are ever going to vote for a black man in this job. And I, uh, well, let me tell you something. I think that you have me wrong and you have underestimated the citizens of Denver. And I'm going to go win that race. And I walked out of that meeting so mad. And the first person I called was Dick Kay, Lloyd Spurs. He was one of my benefactors financially. And he was also one of Dale's closest friends. And he said, Norm, come. Norm, come. You know, that's how he talked. Come, come. And he wanted me to come down to Lloyd's first and uh, have a conversation with him. And, and you know, Dick used to be a boxer. I don't know if there many people would realize that, but he was pretty good uh, Golden Gloves futurist. And he almost threw me in a chair and said, Norm, what on earth is wrong with you? And I told him what happened with, with Dave. And he said, uh, you listen to me. You do what you have to do. And I will make sure that you have every cent you need to win that race. He said, now let's go get it. And he called Dick Kay. I mean, he called Dick Lamb. Had a conversation with Lamb, Lamb and Kay, talking to each other. And Dick Lamb got an earful from Dick Kay. And I think that that was very instrumental in uh, helping. And then when I went in to talk to him, it felt great. He was there, Roy Rowe was there, and I was there. And between the three of us, we did an extensive conversation about why I would be uh, the best DA. Now, one of the first things he said to me was he realized that Dick Spriggs would be my safe choice. And I said, yes, but I would be a bold one. And he kind of chuckled a little, looked at me, smiled, and said, I agree with you. So that's kind of how it happened. And uh, Dale didn't really put his uh, two cents worth into it that I know of. Now, he might have done some things that you know that I'm not really aware of, but that that was the way it went down. Wow. I had never heard that. Thank you for sharing that. And to think when I walked in the Denver DA's office with a guy named Bill Ritter and Karen Steinhauser and Michael Cohen, they'll be to go lightly. We all got hired in to start as interns on June 1, 1980. And upstairs in that old 924 West Colfax building were the big stick district court deputies like Norma Early, who was the chief deputy then. And upstairs there was Beth McCann, who was also a district court deputy. Now she's the Denver DA. What do you think about when you hear that, Norma Early? It extends all the way back to Dale Tooley through you. It's kind of been a family affair. Uh, Mitch Morrissey, also hired by you, I believe. Tell everybody your thoughts about Beth McCann and the family legacy that's been created at the Denver DA's office. That place is amazing. And the people who work there were and are amazing. That has been an office that has carried on Dale Tooley's legacy. And those of us who are lucky enough to work with Dale know truly how great a legacy it is. He instilled in us the kinds of principles that I think are still running through the office and uh, in terms of fairness and treatment of people and you know and that's and, and he supported me in all of my efforts with respect to victims of crime because he felt them very strongly himself. He he was truly an amazing man, a wonderful family man. You know, Dale and I not only had spent the time in the office, but a lot of time on the road together because of our involvement in the National District Attorneys Association. And, you know, we would share rooms together uh, across the country. I'm trying to think of the beginning of a story that we were in New Orleans, I know, and we were in the same room. I had been out that night with a prosecutor from Chicago, 
and it got to the point where it, we we had stayed out so late, we decided to go get some breakfast, and we went to get breakfast and at one of the soul food places in, in excuse me in New, in New Orleans, just a great great breakfast, and I came in to the to the room after I was dropped off, and Dale was waking up. He had obviously opened the curtains. I came in a room. I closed the curtains. <laughs> I I climbed into bed, and Dale made a phone call, and he was talking to somebody. I, I suspect it was Marianne, his wife, and he said, I'm getting up. It's, I don't know, 6 o'clock in the morning, and he said, and I opened the curtains, and Norm comes in. He closes the curtain, and he gets in the bed. He said, it's like rooming with a mole. It's just like... <laughs> That's a perfect roommate situation. That's funny. <laughs> you are associated, in my mind, normally, with three different cities. Of course, Denver, Colorado, where you were the DA for so many years. Atlanta, where you are now, I want to talk to you about that. But let's go back to your roots. You grew up in Washington, D.C. What was that like? And what is D.C. like now? I haven't been back to D.C. for, well, I bet you like four or five years. And, and I'm sure it's changed some because last time I was there, the housing structure and all that had changed substantially. Did you have a happy childhood? Tell us about your family and where you went to school. Was it a nice place to grow up, Washington, D.C.? Oh, sure. D.C. was great. Nation's capital, chocolate city, a lot of African-Americans there. Uh, I, I remember when I, throughout school, uh, as a youngster, I went to school with African-Americans, and then it was 1954. Brown versus Board of Education, and I went to live with my dad for reasons known to my mom and dad, but not to me. And it was an integrated school on what's now Nichols, was now Martin Luther King Boulevard, used to be Nichols Avenue in D.C. And what a what an incredible experience! So I started going to school with white kids at that point. I remember one one guy. And I cannot remember his name to save my life, but he really impressed me. He was, he was intelligent. He was caring, and he was white. And we we hit it off pretty well, you know. And since then, after that, uh, it seems like uh, I was I was always in a situation where uh, my school was integrated. And it was, it was, you know, it was good, good, good times, good times. Dan Levitt, Stanford training, world record holder and blocking by a shot. You know, I let you block a lot of those shots so that you would go for the head fake the next time. You know that, don't you? Um, yeah, I, I knew there was something in your game that was trying to catch me to do something. You know, I, I, we block, I did block a lot of those shots. And, uh, but I got to tell you, Craig, you got a lot of them off, and when they got off, they went in. So, it was and how like, is it that I, we are the same size? How is it, Danny Lovett, we are the same size, 6'5, well over 200 pounds, but your arms are four or five inches longer than mine? What's up with that? You know, all I can tell you, Craig, is some people are more lucky than others. Hey. That's personal. What happens if people personally reference me when they call you, Dan Lovett, 303-829-2107? They say, I want some Sandler training, and Craig sent me. What's going to happen to them? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is say, first of all, I appreciate that you um, heard about us on Craig's show. And the next thing I'm going to say is, you know, I'm not sure I'm the right fit for you, but I want to know more about what's going on in your world. I can probably help you, but I'm going to discover what's really going on. That's a Sandler training technique right there, isn't it? 
You know, it is, Craig. It's as opposed to me assuming that I'm the right one. I'm going to find out and make sure that what the person that calls me about is is interested in certain things that I can help with. The number to call, 303-829-2107. A true Colorado character. You will make money by calling Dan Levitt. You will increase your sales. Sandler Training has been in business for 45 years. They know what they're doing. They have a history of success. Put that success to work for you. Dan Levitt, I look forward to our future visits in person and on the show. Craig, I appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to your podcast weekly. I know you're going to continue to grow and grow your uh, listeners, and I just, I'm, I'm very excited that you're back on the, on the air. Thank you. Dan Lovett, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Thank you, Danny. Talk to you. Thank you, Craig. All right. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. God, Norm, you're laying down some great stories. Let's pick up right here. Talk to us about George Floyd. It's effect on you, Norm Early. It's effect on everybody's perceptions about a lot of things. I saw that cop's knee on his neck. And I went, oh, no, not again. That's that's just what I thought. And boom, you know, he's dead. I I just couldn't believe it. And and what got me as I looked at that picture was the smug look on his face. Didn't give a crap. This is just another one of those you know what's and I'm taking him out of here. And he thought he could do it with impunity. And that he would cause black folks, white folks, brown folks, red folks, everybody to join together to protest the unfair treatment of police officers around the country. It's under the umbrella of Black Lives Matter. What's your feeling about that group? I don't know a lot about Black Lives Matter. They were forming when we were when I was still in Denver. As a matter of fact, Beth knew a lot more about them than I did, and because when she came in to do her interview with me, as did the other leading candidates for the job when I left, she she was very well versed in. And, and who was involved in what they were doing and how they were trying to do it. I think the name has thrown some people off. Uh, and, but I think that those who can't get past the name are individuals who probably don't ascribe to a lot of the things that Black Lives Matter ascribes to, which are good, very good things. As far as I'm concerned, the, the way they have conducted themselves nationally is phenomenal. And they are not responsible for the looting and all the other things that occurred during the course of demonstrations. Anarchists, anarchists saw an opportunity to get involved and to create some havoc, and they did it, separate and apart from the Black Lives Matter movement. So I'm I'm ha- I'm happy that they're here and I'm really happy that they're causing changes in our in our culture that uh, statues that shouldn't have been put up in the first place are coming down that a lot of whites are examining those to whom they have paid homage years and years and they're doing it because of Black Lives Matter. I'm talking to Norm Early. He's in the heart of the South, Atlanta, Georgia. How do you feel when you see a Confederate flag? How has that affected you in your life? There's always been a recoil, even though it may be a silent recoil at times. 
and uh, a more outward one at other times, but there's, there's always a recoil. And uh, <laughs> I don't think that it, it, it does us any good to glorify uh, that flag or anything that it stands for. Slavery is alive and well as long as people are allowed to embrace something of that nature. I'm going to use his name. I know you don't like to, but President Trump this week said people love the Confederate flag. It's a matter of free speech. Let people do what they want. What do you think about that attitude? Well, I thought that Trump is is a racist, bigot, misogynist, uh, that he has absolutely no character whatsoever. And that has been, that's been my feeling about him since the day he said he was going to run for president. I, I believe that, you know, there, there are certain things that you look for. And, and being Jewish, Greg, I know there are things that you look for and the things that people say when they're talking about Jews and history. And there's things that I look for as an African-American. And without going into detail, he, in every instance, he had an opportunity to say something that that dispelled the notion in my mind that he was all those things and more. He never lived up to the task. He's always found opportunities to degrade and devalue and diminish African-Americans while extolling individuals who don't deserve to be extolled. It is outrageous. He infuriates me. I've come to realize that he's racist. What do we do with uh, people who won't accept that or say he delivers the kind of judges we want? Do you say, well, that's just politics or is it beyond that for you? Way beyond that. I, I know in my heart that people who will not condemn him won't condemn him because they feel similar to the way he feels. And that's just, <laughs> that's just the ball game, you know? Do you think all roads lead to Putin? Do you think that Donald Trump and his quest for money and self-aggrandizement has sold his soul to foreign interests? The, the natural answer would be yes, but quite frankly, I don't know. I know that, that there's something going on with him and Putin, and it's something that is detrimental to the interests of this country. And he doesn't care. Uh, his, his own, as you say, self-aggrandizement is far more important to him than any of that sort of thing. You were a great leader in the Denver DA's office and elsewhere, Norm Early. Have you ever seen leadership like Donald Trump? Isn't it farcical? What kind of person would go to work for him now? Somebody who needs the money awfully badly or needs a, needs a position. You know? I don't think that there's any honor. I saw his niece on TV yesterday. She, she said that she could tell him one thing. She would say resign because he does not have the ability to lead a country like this. And he doesn't. What about the Republican Party? He's totally taken them over. Was that surprising to you? And do you think there's any future for the Republican Party if, God willing, he's defeated in November? Yeah, there, there, there is, because there are enough people out there who, who are going to vote for Trump no matter what. I, th I think Biden will win. I've got my fingers crossed, and I'm doing my little bit. But I, I, I think Biden, I've even got a face mask that says vote. Nice. That's what it will take. Do you think African-Americans will turn out for Joe Biden? Uh, yeah, because he's going to have a black woman on the ticket. Who will it be? Do you know the Atlanta mayor? I know you know the Atlanta DA. I've never met Keisha Lance Bottoms. Do you know what Lance means? No. Oh, uh, you'll be surprised. There was a singer years ago who made a song called Monkey Time. There's a place right about town, whenever you're ready, Major Lance. <laughs> oh, oh. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she's uh, she's doing a great job as mayor, based on what I can see from the television. I don't know her at all. Of course, I do know Paul Howard, the district attorney, quite well. Who would you advise Joe Biden to pick as his VP? I analyze it, and the people who I think are are who, who fit all the qualities, individual who can succeed him because he's probably only going to do four years, an individual who can help him and who can help him win and who can do the job. There are some people who can fit in that category, but I think that the best of all that is Susan Rice and Karen Bass, secondly. I think a lot of people would be surprised that you didn't pick the former big city prosecutor, Kamala Harris. Why not? Good friend of mine, and I've known her for years. Matter of fact, I know her when she and Willie Willie Brown were together. I don't this. There's, you know, when it comes to running the country, I think the two that I mentioned are probably the best. Fascinating stuff from Norm Early, who knows a lot about the Democrat Party. Who's the most impressive? person in politics you've ever encountered. Willie Brown had to be a spectacular politician to do all the things he's done. Yeah, I'll tell you, one time we were at a dinner for Willie. He saw me come in. I got there a little late. And he said, no, I'm coming And I did. And he says, people, take a good look at this man. And this was, this was years ago. And he was running for mayor. And he said, you know, black mayors are a dime a dozen. But I'm going to show you something really rare here. This is a black district attorney. <laughs> I know you've never seen one before, and you may never see one again. You know? Of course, uh, in, in recent years, that's changed quite a bit. But With respect to the run-up to this election, is this an important time in American history? And why do you regard it that way? <laughs> I think it's probably the most, I know it's the most since I've been living, uh, certainly the most in my adult life. I think if, if Donald Trump gets four more years, he will destroy the democracy in this country. Certainly is well on his way to destroying the rule of law already. And so many of the things that I've always thought were important have held there. I really think he's an individual who cares about nobody but himself and nothing but his pocketbook. Normally, that's a great way to wrap it up in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I cannot thank you enough. Enjoyed the visit. Best to you and your family. Take care, Craig. Thank you much. Okay, thank you. Normally. Bye-bye. Bye. And there you go. My friend Normally, in his own words, I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. And tomorrow we have episode 95, It's a Doozy, with lots of foreign correspondents. See you in my regular spot, Saturday mornings, 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode dedicated to the late, great Norm Early. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.